The Brood 10 podcasts made possible by support from Mount St. Joseph University School of Behavioral and Natural Sciences, cultivating an understanding and appreciation of the creative and critical nature of scientific thought. Climb higher at the Mount. Learn more at msj.edu. Welcome to the Brew 10 Cicada Podcast, your source for answers to every question you've ever had about this mysterious swarm of noisy insects set to descend on the region this spring and early summer. I'm Corey Sharber. Last week, we learned a lot of the important takeaways for folks living amongst the arrival of Brew 10. Most importantly, they're harmless, and while possibly a mild nuisance to some, they should be observed and documented rather than disturbed. But now we like to get a better grasp on the history of human interaction with periodical cicadas. We'll take a look at how they were first observed, documented and understood by both European colonizers and indigenous people, and what we now know as the eastern region of the United States. We'll also explore how the European settlers using their Bibles for reference may have mixed periodical cicadas up with locusts, and just how did observers start to document the periodical nature of cicada emergences. As always, our guide on this journey will be the Dean of Behavioral and Natural Sciences and Professor in the Department of Biology at Mount St. Joseph University here in Cincinnati and PhD of Entomology, Dr. Gene Kritzky. Hey everyone, this is Corey Sharper from Cincinnati Public Radio. I'm here with Gene Kritzky, our cicada expert. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's been a good week. It's been a great week, and I, I'm definitely looking forward to our conversation we're going to have today about cicadas. Uh, now, of course, cicadas, they're loud. They're they are pretty plentiful, especially during the summer years, but cicadas aren't just only found in America. They've, they're have found throughout the entire world, even, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. There's about 3,000 species worldwide, and uh, uh, here in Ohio, for example, we've got 20 species and subspecies of cicadas. Uh, six of them are periodicals, mm. the rest are the annual cicadas. And, uh, of course, the thing that we're all talking about this year are the periodical cicadas. And, you know, seeing, like, this big emergence coming coming to this region, it makes, it makes me think of just how many other places around the world have been seeing emergences. And it makes me think, you know, like... How cicadas got here in the first place, and may have, of course, one just just through natural evolution and through the ice age, and you know all the the tectonic plates breaking and whatnot. But it also makes me think of how if they came here through all the settlers coming over here. You know, when did you know when did you Europeans first encounter uh, a cicada emergence? Like, you know, what was it like? We already know how, how crazy we have it over here, but how crazy did they have it? <laughs> well, it turns out the cicadas are uh, our periodical cicadas are. Uh, endemic to eastern United States. They only occur in the eastern U.S. Uh, there are other periodical cicadas. So there's one that's been found in Fiji, uh, a beautiful cicada that has an eight-year life cycle. And then there's a f- another periodical cicada that occurs in India that comes out during the year that the World Cup is played. Huh. <laughs> so they, they obviously has a sports interest. <laughs> but uh, the Europeans, uh, when they came over uh, in the uh, uh, in the early years, it was the it was the pilgrims in Plymouth mm. that encountered the first periodical cicadas, and that's that's the, that, I'm sure others did as well, but they didn't record them. But we have a, a written document by uh, William Bradford. He was the second governor of Plymouth Colony, and he recorded in the history of the colony what occurred. And he wrote, "And the spring before, especially all the month of May, there was such a quantity of a great sort of flies, like for bigness to wasps or bumblebees." 
which came out of holes in the ground and replenished all the woods and ate the green things and made such a constant yelling noise as made all the woods ring of them and ready to deaf the hearers. <laughs> they have not by the English been heard or seen before or since. But the Indians told them that sickness would follow. And so it did in June, July, August, and the chief heat of summer. Mm. That's that's the first uh, historical record. Now, naturally, the the uh, indigenous populations here knew about them. They, this is you know they weren't here just for the Europeans. They'd been here all along. But that's the first time that uh, they there's a written history of when the cicadas emerged, and uh, it's quite a you know, it's, you know it's sort of the idea for bigness for bumblebees and wasps. Just trying to make sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. It must have been a, a shocking thing. Yeah, absolutely. all of a sudden. You wake up one morning and find the whole thing, everything covered with with shells and what have you. And then three, four days later, the place is just screaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, they didn't have, you know, off bug spray or, or exterminators or anything like that. These, This is a uh, an incredibly new experience for all of the settlers. Now, what about the indigenous population? You know, what what did they think of the cicadas? Obviously, they they had been used to it by this point. So how did they how did they manage all of the screaming and the <laughs> well, and whatnot? No, the, I, I, I'm not sure how they managed the screen per se. Uh, according to Bradford, they thought that, was, that they associated this maybe with illness. But other records show that they, uh, the indigenous populations uh, consider them a very a viable food source. Uh, they, uh, we've, I'm looking at some of the uh, some of the early accounts uh, corroborated that the Indians. I'll quote here from some uh, a reference made different species made made different species of cicadas an article of the diet and every year gathering quantities of these. Uh, so they could even dig up the immatures and those were dry roasted. There's an association with that with the Iroquois. Uh, so they considered it a, a, a wonderful uh, a po- a food source, and especially when they would come up with the emergency years, that'd be like a, a little extra surprise. It's interesting to see how the, the, the indigenous people kind of like use this as a food source, whereas the, you know, pilgrims and European settlers. It seems like they just thought these they were just these mighty pests that that came from the ground. You know, what what did the pilgrims think these things were when they first came? Or did they even well, think they were bugs? Or did they well, think there some just you know just thousands of I don't know satanic creatures just emerging out of nowhere? Like what what did they think? Well, the biggest problem is what makes sense of this. And of course, uh, we knew that the uh, the pilgrims uh, and the first years had a real problem with arthropods because they they actually had. Uh, rules that they couldn't feed lobsters to prisoners more than twice once or twice a week mm. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh, the, the we see that in the, in the uh, 1600s uh, they're always referred to as flies or big flies mm. uh, uh, it wasn't until we get to 1715 and that happens to be the first reference to uh, uh, brood 10 that we start getting the the, the statement that these are locusts and that all came probably from an interpretation of, of the Bible using the King James Version. Uh, we know there were uh, lo- locust plagues, and this sure seemed like a plague. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Revelation, it talks about some uh, some mm-hmm. animal coming from dips, the depths of the earth with a stinger. These things stuck their egg-laying structure, the ovipositor, into trees. In Micah, it talks about these calls. That's uh, made sense that we consider these things as locusts. And of course, uh, uh, once people decided that they were locusts, then changed everything. Now the Europeans are seeing them. Uh, in fact, there's a reference uh, when they were first recorded in uh, Philadelphia in 1715 that the people thought they might be the same kind of locusts eaten by John the Baptist. <laughs> and uh, so uh, 
there's there is a, a, a quotation by the Reverend Andreas Sandel when he uh, started out. And he goes, "This is written on May 9th, 1715. In this month of May, some singular flies came out of the ground. The English call them locusts. That's the first time that happened that we've got that reference for the locusts." Hmm. Uh, when they left the ground, holes could be seen everywhere in the roads and especially in the woods. They were encased in shells out of which they crawled. It seemed most wonderful how being covered with the shell, they were able to burrow their way in the hard ground. When they began to fly, they made a peculiar noise. And being found in great multitudes all over the country, their noise made the cowbells inaudible in the woods. They were also destructive making slits in the bark of trees where they deposited their worms, which withered the branches. Swine and poultry ate them, but what was more astonishing, when they first appeared, some of the people split them open and ate them, holding them to be the same kind as those eaten by John, eaten by John the Baptist. <laughs> Either way, it doesn't sound incredibly appetizing. I'm just, I'm hoping they got something out of it, right? <laughs> it depends whether whether they ate them. Uh, if they're talking about splitting them open, they're eating the adults as they're coming mm. out of the shell. That'd be soft and uh, could be uh, could be flavorful, depending on what kind of flavor you want to call it. Uh, uh, to me, uh, uh, periodical cicadas have a, a very green flavor. Mm. I've had people describe them as tasting like a raw potato. Uh, in my own case, I thought they tasted like cold canned asparagus. <laughs> uh, but uh, it. Uh, they're not something I, I I look forward to eating. It that's for sure. <laughs> well, there's definitely supposed to be a ton of them coming out this year, so there's definitely more chances to try if you want to improve your palate a little bit. Now, <laughs> we, we're talking about the, the settlers coming over here, not knowing what these were. But cicadas, of course, are found throughout the world. You know how widespread mm-hmm. was the knowledge of these insects at the time? You know did did any did anyone come over here knowing what these things were, or was it just complete ignorance. <laughs> it was not initially. Indeed, uh, uh, a man by the name of Paul Dudley, he uh, lived in in uh, New in Baltimore. Excuse me. He lived in, in Boston. Excuse me. Uh, he uh, wrote a paper, a scientific paper, uh, based on his observations of another brood, Brood 11. And uh, they that brood emerged in 1699 and again in 1716. And so he wrote this scientific paper to send to London to the Royal Society. And then he thought he got some information wrong. So he waited another 17 years <laughs> to make sure he got it right. And he sent that off and sent it off to, uh, to uh, London. And uh, after it was read, people got an uproar that, that he had confused a cicada for a locust. Well, and not so the they wrote idea. to him. And, and so they wrote to him and said, uh, uh, you know, you've got these things mixed up. Mm. And he wrote back, said, no, uh, Reverend Weld, tell and, and, and the, a local minister in town that he knew, uh, and using the King James Version of the Bible, had put all these things together, he said, assures me that they are locusts. And so what I get, I think it's amazing, the society arranged for a Egyptian locust to be mailed from Cairo <laughs> to Boston to convince him. And it got there. <laughs> You know, all the concern that we have with the mail systems today, <laughs> it gets there. And this is <laughs> this is 1734. <laughs> and, uh, 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 he, he gets us and he, he's convinced, yes, these are, what we have here are cicadas. They're not locusts. Uh, but what will the common people call them? Because that, that, that terminology is so enmeshed in the population. He said they'll call it locusts for centuries. And they did. So, so we talked about how he... 
he he waited 17 years to make sure he got got his got his hypothesis right. So, how long do do cicadas live? Like, what what is it with the 17 year guess that he took at the time? Well, he was he based on his own experience. He was mm-hmm. he witnessed the 1699 emergence, and they came out again in 1716, and so he he, he wrote that up, and then he realized that maybe they aren't necessarily. 17 years. So he thought he'd wait another 17 years to make sure. And that's because we have areas where broods overlap. And uh, so in Southwest Ohio, we've got uh, brood 10 and brood 14. So this year we'll have cicadas of brood 10 come out. Brood 14 will come out in four years. Are they four years cicadas? (laughs) And then 13 years later, brood 10 comes out again. Are they 13 years cicadas? Right. And yet other parts of the country only have one. They're 17 years apart. And there was a lot of confusion at the late, uh, in the late 1700s and uh, uh, getting into the early 1800s as to what was the true life cycle. And so Dudley was one of the first to really document this in this manuscript, although it was never published. Uh, it, I did publish the entire manuscript of my, my first book on periodical cicadas. But uh, in, southwest, in southeast Ohio, at Marietta, uh, uh, we had a, a physician who actually witnessed the emergence of 1712, and he had remembered that they also came out in, in uh, 1695. And that was another example of, up at the same time period showing that they were indeed 17-year cicadas. And he waited for the next emergence. They were 17. So that's how, that's how they finally figured it out, was being at one place, watching it. And they only came out at one time at one place, so they didn't get overlapping with other broods. I keep hearing you talk, you know, about brood ten, brood eleven, brood twenty three. You know, what are broods in in cicada talk? Well, we we broods are really year classes, and uh, the uh, brood ten are all this these insects that come out this year, and so every the the cicadas that come out this year and every seventeen years since and every seventeen years back are designated brood ten. That was a, a prior to the eighteen nineties. We had all sorts of numbering systems. Many of them are based on broods, but they mixed them up in any in different patterns. There's no real logic to it. And it wasn't until 1893 that uh, uh, we was selected as the year to start this up. And that was p- picked up by a USDA entomologist by the name of Charles Marlott. And he said, okay, if you're a cicada emerging, a 17-year cicada emerging in 1893, you now belong to brood one. If you're coming up in 1894, you're now belonging to brood two and so on. And if you're a 13-year cicada and you come out in 1893, you're brood 18 and so on. And that that started the numbering system that finally permitted is permitted us to make real sense of their distribution in these 17-year increments. And, there, and there's so many broods. And, of course, this year we happen to be, you know, everything seems to be centered around brood 10. Why is there so much interest in brood 10 this year? And, yes, we are making a podcast about this. might be an obvious question. But... I, I want to know. I mean, like, it, it's they're making a really big deal out of this all of a sudden. Like, why is there so much interest in in this particular one? Well, I think it's it's related to where it occurs. Uh, brood ten occurs with in, within several metropolitan areas. We're going to find it coming out in Philadelphia, Washington, Baltimore, Cincinnati, uh, west of Columbus, Indianapolis, Louisville, west of uh, of Nashville, Chattanooga, Knoxville. In this time period, particularly in Washington, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and Baltimore, there are major entomologists living. And so much of what we know about periodical cicadas came from the study of brood 10 emergences. I'm d- glad that 
most of this is taking place in Cincinnati, so I don't have to take a trip to Baltimore to observe all of this. But Gene, another great talk. I'm glad we're getting to learn more and more about these wonderful insects, and I can't wait to talk about this with you next time. Thank you so much, Gene. Oh, you're welcome. Had fun. We also love to take questions and any comments from all of our listeners. And you can, of course, email us at broodx, as in the Roman numeral 10, at wvxu.org. One of those questions, actually, one of those comments comes from James in Olympia, Washington, which reads, quote, I grew up in rural Japan in the 1950s through the 60s, where the sounds of cicadas were the norm during the summers. On late afternoon or early evenings before the sunset, a species of cicadas different from the daytime ones produced a unique, pleasant sound, quite different from the constant loud buzzing of the midday cicadas. As a kid, I searched for cicadas on trees and then climbed up the trees to gather them, or if I were lucky, I found them crawling out from the ground. At first, they would be a pale light green in color with tiny shrivel wings, but after fully emerging from their exoskeleton, they would slowly begin to change in color. I now live in Washington State where cicadas are non-existent. I still miss the summer sounds of the cicada and often smile with amusement when I hear of people here in the U.S. complaining of their sounds. That's James in Olympia, Washington. Thank you so much. I can't imagine like what it would be like not hearing cicadas every summer. It's weird because as much as people complain about them, their absence is definitely noted during the summer months. I was, mm-hmm. you know, his question made me think of, you know, since you've been you've been researching cicadas for a long time now. What was your first ever experience with cicadas? Would you were you, you know, as a kid growing up digging well, them out in the backyard? The, uh, the 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 mostly it was watching them develop and seeing the the shells and wondering what they were initially and what have you. Uh, what what struck me with James's comment is uh, just last year. I was watching, uh, uh, wandering around the, the university grounds, and an annual cicada had crawled up the pillar right next to the to Seton Hall. And I watched it shed its skin, and this thing came out, and it was this wonderful pale green, almost like a gem. And it was really cool. I just, I just thought, it, it had dark, and it did eventually darken, but it was something that just looked almost ethereal is how it was the look on that thing. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, it walked a few inches away from its skin. And I got all these photographs that I couldn't stop taking of the, probably 50, 60 of them, which I'm known for doing, of, of this wonderful, beautiful animal uh, next to the, the shell. And uh, that, that went, when you read his, his question and seeing the, the green, that was what stick out, sucks out in my mind with regard to the annual cicadas. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Brew 10 Cicada Podcast. Our thanks as always to our guest expert, Gene Kritsky. You can learn more and assist Gene's cicada mapping efforts by visiting cicadasafari.org. Be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send questions for Gene, recordings of cicada sightings in your area, or anything else cicada related by emailing us at broodx, as in the Roman numeral 10, at wvxu.org or use the talk to us feature on the WVXU app. We may include your questions or thoughts in a future episode. This podcast is produced by the always brooding Josh Elstrom. For Cincinnati Public Radio, I'm Corey Sharber, and you've been listening to the Brew 10 Cicada Podcast. We'll talk again next week. Mm-hmm.